Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm Mark Yacono, your host. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal recruiting and consulting. Our goal with this podcast is to have meaningful conversations with serious people about mental health and wellness issues in our profession. Today, we have a very special guest. Brian Cuban is a lawyer, author, and passionate advocate for recovery. In both his writing and his speaking, he shares with enormous generosity his battles with addiction and mental illness. He is in my book, The Ultimate Case Study in Authenticity, Hope, and Redemption. His two books, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder, and The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, are both gripping and compelling reads. Uh, Brian, welcome to Erasing the Stigma. It's so nice to have you today. Thanks for having me on, Mark. I think that when you and I prepped for this call, we talked about maybe this would be a great time for a reality check. You have a lot of exposure with lawyers and lawyers groups across the country, and the rest of us do a lot of reading and screening and LinkedIn digesting of things that are happening with respect to wellness and mental health, the ABA pledge and all of that. And I wanna know from, from someone who, who, who's, who's on the ground almost every day, what you're seeing, what's making a difference, what's resonating, what's the level of knowledge out there about, about the ABA pledge and other things. I wanna get an idea what's really happening. Here is an anecdote that really illustrates what partially what may be going on underneath big law. I had lunch about three weeks ago with a friend of mine, a good guy, uh, who is a partner at a medium law firm in Dallas, about 60 people. Uh, they do a wide range. They offer a wide range of services. And we got together to just catch up, and he asked me how my advocacy is going. And I asked him, I threw the question back, and how do you think it's going? What do you see in the profession in terms of awareness, and how is your firm reacting to it? He said to me in not so many words, do you want to hear what you want to hear, or do you want to hear the truth? I want to hear the truth. Here it comes. I couldn't care less about any of this. This is coming from him. My firm really doesn't care about any of this. Not that I don't care about whether people I know are struggling, or I hope an associate who is struggling will come to me. He said, Brian, here is what I care about as a partner in this firm. I care about our profitability. I care about our maintaining a lifestyle with our, through our profitability. I care about my family. Do I care if a lawyer is struggling? Yes. Do I hope he will come to me? Yes. Do I view this as something he needs to take care of and it's not on our firm? Yes. That is the reality of what he told me. And I felt myself getting angry to hear this. And I had to take stock of why I was getting angry. And it wasn't 
it was because I live in this basically confirmation bias of wellness warriors where we all tell ourselves the profession gets it. We're all getting it. Everyone gets it. No, everyone doesn't get it. And when you look at the ABA wellness pledge, what's going on in big law, it's easy to have the impression, and this isn't to degrade that, this isn't to diminish that, because that is important what they are doing. Not every, this, I question how much of penetration we are getting in this message of wellness and changing a paradigm of how we look at wellness in the profession below big law. That is a very keen observation, and it's important because we pay a lot of attention to big law because they're big. But what we forget, I think, when we do that is that there are the vast majority of lawyers in this country aren't in big law and aren't in firms with resources or billions of dollars or over a billion dollar in revenue to fund this stuff. So we're really talking about the wide belly of the profession really being disconnected with kind of the world we've built around things are getting better and here are all these things you can do to tackle the problem. At least that's my perception is we've forgotten that there's this wide middle. I don't know that we've forgotten, Mark. I think the ABA is aware of it. I think lawyers' assistance programs are awareness, and the local bar associations are. That is the demographic they deal with. The majority of the profession, solo practitioners, small firm practitioners, boutique practitioners. It is the, the issue becomes more: how do you how do you change the message and make it sellable to that profession? And I, that is a cha- to that demographic of our profession, and that is a challenge. And I don't know if we have figured it out yet. Okay, so we have big law out there that are investing in programs, investing in human capital, and investing in a lot of things. We don't really, right now, I think, have sufficient data or historical guidance to know how efficient or efficacious those programs will be over the long term because it's too soon. Correct. Then we have local. Well, we have our we, lawyers anecdotally telling us uh, how, how they feel about it. Exactly. Then we have bar associations, which have become more and more uniformly proactive in providing resources and programs and help. But again, we don't have great data on the efficacy. Well, so if or do we? Well, we, we have the bar associations and part, and then we also have the lawyer's assistance program. Okay, and the lawyer's assistance programs keep data on the types of calls they get, and they are in a better position to know uh, the efficacy of, of, that, of that data set, right, the people who are calling them for help. But we have the barriers of funding, and we have the barriers of firewalls where – we have the state bars whose job is to protect the public, and I get that, and there has to be a firewall. And we have the lawyers' assistance programs where never the two shall meet, right? How do we bridge that gap? Are Unless you the seeing, lawyer signs a release to give up the information. Are you part seeing of a, a, any, anybody try to bridge that gap right now? 
Yes, I, I, I think the I, I have seen uh, I think the state bar of Texas and I've seen state bars try to do the best they can within their mandates to take a more human centric vision of protecting the public. I think state bars are trying to take a more person centered view of their membership within within their within their limitations. But where is the funding going to come from and we also have the limitation of what lawyers assistance programs do and the implicit bias within the programs. Uh, I do not believe recovery within the legal profession and how we view recovery has caught up with the science. That's another problem. Can you expand on that? Sure. And this isn't meant to denigrate 12-step. I got sober in 12-step. It was great for me. The legal profession is very 12-step centric. Okay, and the most well-known of 12 steps is Alcoholics Anonymous. We may have people who say that we, we may have a narrative of we know all the other things available, uh, we know about harm reduction, we know about this, we know about that, but in my anecdotal viewpoint and what I see, there is a strong implicit bias that regardless of what the lawyer is going through, what the lawyer needs, that lawyer is going to be funneled into a 12-step program. And that may not be what, what, what is right for that lawyer. What is the basis for you, your belief that that's, that's sort of the default route is to channel a lawyer into a 12-step program versus some other treatment? What are you seeing that gets you to that conclusion? I have yet to talk to a lawyer in recovery who is on a path who dealing with alcohol or opioid uh, opioid use disorder or something like that, who is on any path but an abstinent 12-step path. From your experience in the field, that is really sort of the only recovery modality beyond whatever sort of medical intervention or medically supervised detoxification well, or whatever. Well, that's, well, we have to remember that, that 12 Twelve step is no. not treatment. It's mutual aid support. It's peer. It's a form of peer support. Although peer peer support is different. It is called mutual aid support. Okay. So if a lawyer gets re, if a lawyer goes into residential treatment, that is where a lawyer may be exposed to other types of treatment modality, whether it's medication assisted treatment, whether it's harm reduction. And I don't doubt that our lawyers assistance programs know these paths. I know ours does, but I question whether our, 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 our implicit bias based on our, our own lived experiences when we try, are trying to help other lawyers is actually preventing us from doing what, from putting them on a path that they want to be put on. It is very easy for me coming out of a 12-step program to assume that anyone who needs, who say has a, is a problem drinker. Lawyer comes to me, he is a problem drinker, a quote unquote alcoholic. The lawyer says, I think I'm an alcoholic. It would be e very easy for me just to say to that lawyer, have you found a good 12-step meeting? Versus asking that lawyer and figuring out whether that's right for that lawyer. And I think we need to take a broader view of recovery in the profession to be more inclusive to lawyers who may not want paths 
that that particular path, if that makes sense. So when you talk about it, it does make sense. It does make sense because twelve step isn't for everyone, and it may not even be the appropriate next step for some. Well, let's no. look at our judicial system. I, it, this is just the way. This, this is just the way society. This is just the way our recovery society within the legal profession and the judicial system has developed. If you if you are put on probation and you have an if you have a drinking problem, you're not probably not going to smart recovery, especially in Texas. Other states are more progressive, California, and we have jurisdictions that have uh, ruled that uh, if a person doesn't want to go to 12-step for religious reasons, it's a violation of the Establishment Clause to force them there. So there are other options. But especially in Texas, you're probably going to be funneled to 12-step. There is no other option given to you. And so this is just the way our system has developed. That is not a criticism of 12-step. But I believe as part of having a more inclusive conversation in terms of recovery, we need to step back from that and talk about what is right for the lawyer versus what, is, what was right for me. So I'm going to push that on the lawyer. I hear what you're saying, and I get it, that kind of the default way that people the, the the state bars or the judiciary deals with lawyers with these issues is to require them to attend a 12-step program especially as you said in Texas but my question is that doesn't really preclude someone from doing something in addition to that and and maybe I'm misinterpreting, but you seem to be sort of describing what could be described as a zero-sum game, that they're being referred to 12-step and that's it. When in reality, they could be combining that, especially if they were given some awareness, with some other other options. Am I wrong or am I oversimplifying? Uh, let's look at it from another perspective. Brian Cuban is, has reached the limits. He needs help. He doesn't know what to do. He goes to somebody. He is in what is called the uh, – there, there are five stages of change, Mark. Okay. He, he is in the pre-contemplation stage of change. He doesn't, he doesn't really want anything. He doesn't know what he wants. He goes to – Mark, and Mark is a big 12-step guy and says, Brian, I think you should go to 12-step. Brian is in a vulnerable and confused stage. Brian probably isn't going to be in a position to say, no, I'd rather go into smart recovery. No, I might want to check out medication-assisted treatment, whether it's Vivitrol or something else, okay? So when you have people who are in that position – and even if you have the best intention, yes, you are basically directing their recovery. So it is you are not so, really giving and you are not really offering a choice, even if you think you are. The point is is that if we want to change the conversation about lawyers in recovery and making it more reclusive, making it more inclusive to 
to all lawyers below big law who we not may may not have the resources uh, to to do other things. We have to have that conversation as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. It makes perfect sense. And I guess my question is, as you sort of traveled around the country and you've talked to different people, are you seeing places where they are having that conversation? Yes, I think we are. That we, I think I have seen the conversation being had, but is that conversation turning into action? Uh, I I could go. I I know lawyers assistance programs who, in my gut, are probably not doing anything but twelve step, and may think that's the best thing. Okay, and that I mean, it's going to depend on the person, but we have to have that conversation because. Lawyers below big law may not have the resources to do much else. That's fair. So my question is, who are the who are the decision makers or the people who have to be engaged in a change paradigm for this to happen? Is that in the lawyer assistance community, the bar association community, or do we really need to get the leaders of these non-big law firms aligned around this? I mean, who, who, who well, are the key pieces we, to the puzzle? There are key pieces at every level, at big law, at partners of the small firms, at partners in, uh, and general practitioners. But the, here, here's the problem, and this is probably why it's going to be a generational change versus anything Brian Cuban or a few other advocates say. The old way of doing things, whether it's, recovery, whether it's billing, whether it's hours, whether it's changing the paradigm of how billing works and profitability, the old ways are so entrenched over so many years that it may only take the baby boomers and the Generation X retiring out and the new generation coming in before it changes. My generation is entrenched in 12 steps. Generation X is entrenched in 12 steps. So, and, and these generations aren't necessarily open, and I'm generalizing here because I know people my age and people younger who are open, but I don't know that it's anything that is going to be changed that we are going to hit a critical mass with anytime soon. That's an interesting observation, and, and one of the things you made reference to was the billable hour. Do you think that as long as the billable hour is still the predominant form that firms charge fees to clients, that there's going to be meaningful movement, that the constant tension between the need to generate force, billable hours times mass, hourly rates to equal revenue, do you view that as a structural barrier to, to improving the, the mental and emotional and, and state of wellness for this for these non big law lawyers. I view that view that as one of the structural barriers. I was on Twitter the other day, and a gentleman tweeted that the billable hour is the cause of all the mental health issues in the profession. And I pushed back on that. I said, "Wait a minute. There is a difference between cause and correlation." Is is the need to generate the billable hour at, at the expense of lifestyle and at the expense of wellness 
a factor in what could be driving mental health problems within our profession? Yes. Is it the cause? Of course not. Is it a structural barrier that can have an impact if we find another way to do things? Absolutely. Is it something that is directly correlated to looking at, that has a strong correlation to viewing associates as commodities? Absolutely. So it is one aspect. What are some of the other aspects that you see structurally? From the standpoint of somebody who's worked in smaller firms and medium-sized firms, I see that we have the people who are making this, the partners and the name partners, when they start to take an interest in their wellness, and this is where the ABA and Big Long, and, th- and this is where the impact is really being made. When the people at the top are state starting to take an interest in their own wellness, they'll start to take an interest in the, pe- in the wellness of the people below them. And that is more of a trickle-down change. That is not a paradigm change. So it is important to get the stakeholders within the, within the major firms and within the medium-sized firms, the stakeholders within the bar associations, which we have them on board, and the stakeholders within the, uh, the lawyers assistance programs, we have them on board, get them involved on those issues, those core issues, because that is important, but that's trickle down. Let's go back to your lunch a few weeks ago with your friend and partner at this mid-level firm in Texas and him expressing the viewpoint that really none of this is particularly germane to his daily existence. His his job is see that hours are billed, fees are collected, and that the, he and his partners maintain a certain lifestyle. He said one other thing that I forgot about, that, that this is the most important thing to him, and, and shame on me. He said – Providing clients the excellent service they deserve from our firm. That is what matters to me. And those and are re- that is a really important thing. But I want to tie it back to the comment you just made a few moments ago. Do you think the leaders in those firms who are concerned about billing, concerned about their lifestyle, also concerned about great client service, are not invested in their own well-being because you talked about that sort of triple down effect of when these leaders start caring about themselves, it'll trickle down to how they care about other attorneys in the firm and type of options. I, I guess I'm trying to get at what are you trying to say there? Okay. Well, there's a difference between invested in a lifestyle and being invested in your mental health well-being. Do I think people tend to – we all tend to be have an investment in, our, in, in a lifestyle. That's, that's – I mean, we have that – and we have that privilege, right? We, 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 within the profession, there is a privilege within the profession for many. You're invested in a lifestyle. That's not for everyone. A lot of lawyers are, don't have insurance or are de facto uninsured because their deductibles are so high. But that is different than being invested in – In reducing stress, in making sure that you have balance at work. Yes, I do think that trickles down. Now you would now you would have to look at each individual firm to understand sure. to understand to, un- to have a better understanding of that. But yes, I do think it trickles down uh, because I think that is a distinct difference between investing and maintaining a standard of living. And I think when people educate themselves 
to become more holistic in their wellness, they develop more of a self-awareness on what's going on below them. So there's a the leadership component to all of this, which is an informed, informed people within law departments and law firms who have influence being able to shape a perspective based on an informed view of what it means to be a whole person versus merely having programs or merely relying on the local bar or the lawyer's assistance program to provide a backstop for your attorneys. There's an element of leadership that needs to be developed. Absolutely correct. And we can go back to that lunch. He said to me, if they need help, they should go get it. That's not my job. And if they don't want to go get it, I'll have to find someone who can do the job. I don't think that is isolated. Well, it's honest, at least. That was honest. It was honest. And, I'm, and I'd rather have honest than being, you know, BSed uh, in a kumbaya moment because honesty is what we need versus in just the dearth of, and I'm guilty of this, just the dearth of secular posts about breaking stigma and holiday so and, and changing your holiday parties and things like that it's because it just cycles and cycles and cycles and 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 the reality is we need to break from that cycle and ask new questions and I wish I knew all the new questions to ask do you think that generational change will make this easier yes i do because I believe that Generation Z uh, is a much more holistic generation, a much more sharing generation, a much more open generation in terms of mental health, in terms of sharing their stories. Uh, we are getting better in the legal profession at sharing our stories, and I think, I, uh, I, and I wish there were more people sharing their stories, but I understand also that lawyers, lawyer, right? A lawyer in recovery wants to work. A lawyer in recovery isn't me, who isn't working and who has the privilege of nothing to lose, sharing my story. I get rewarded for sharing my story. A lawyer in recovery who is a partner for a firm wants to serve his clients. He doesn't want to be out there talking about recovery and potentially risking losing a client, which is a real risk, regardless of what we tell ourselves. The stigma is real to uh, repeat an off-use phrase. We are breaking it slowly, but it is there. Yes, you can be, yes, you can lose a partnership track. Yes, you can suddenly be on track to be out of the firm. Yes, you can lose a client. That is a real problem because stigma is broader than the profession. Stigma is worldwide, community-wide, profession-wide. So we keep it to ourselves. And Generation Z is a much less, for the lack of a better term, keep it to yourself generation than the baby boomers and even millennials to extend. Or millennials are a little bit, millennials are a little better about that. But even millennials, I see some of it—the secrecy and the uh, the stigma and the shame. We have to keep it to ourselves. We have to keep it to ourselves. I can't tell anyone, and that's fine. If because shame is something that's individual to the to a person. Everyone has to follow their own path. 
and deciding what they will do. No one should be forced to go public with their story. But generationally, I see with the younger, with younger lawyers and younger people in general in the recovery arena, more sharing, more openness. And that is why I think we will see changes as Generation Z comes into the legal profession and transitions into being the decision makers, the stakeholders. And, 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 and that makes a lot of sense. But I think that one of the things you said about going public with with your struggles is it's not really so much – well, it is about going public, but it's also about having an environment where you can go publicly private is what I call it, which is you don't necessarily have to tell your story to the general public to be a, a role model or, or an icon or um, – an exemplar. I totally agree with you, Mark. Uh, going, be, being open about recovery doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a someone like do what I do. You could be the point person within a firm, open about your recovery within the firm. The person people go to when they have a question, not necessarily even have a struggle, have a question about mental health, about uh, pathways that are available. And this circles back to what we were talking about. If you are that person within the firm and you are the recovery person, whether it's big law, and a lot of firms have this, they have the point person, the the old timer. And what is the old timer probably? One guess, when there is a point recovery point person, what is going to be the path of that point person in that firm? It is going to be 12 step. And that person probably believes that is their and they and that is probably their and I am going to generalize here. That is probably that person's only frame of recovery reference. So when you go to them and you have an opioid use issue, which we don't see in much because it's very stigmatized within the profession, uh, heroin <laughs> uh, prescription, you go to that person. What is he going to say? Have you checked out the AA meeting or have you checked out the NA meeting? That may be a that, – that could be the perfect suggestion for that person, but that's not the issue. The issue is what is the implicit bias, right? Because oh, every single time it may not be the right decision. It may not be the right referral. So if we are the point person within the firm – the point person within the legal assist, the lawyer's assistance program, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't it behoove us to understand the bigger picture, understand the broader recovery picture, understand the multiple pathway picture? It absolutely does. And I guess my question is, are firms, medium-sized regional firms, boutique firms, equipped to do that on their own or does that have to be a more orchestrated part of bar associations state and local lawyer assistance programs to bring awareness to those firm leaders because they don't necessarily have the time or the infrastructure or the bandwidth to understand the sophistication and complexity of the issue okay how much time does it really take? Let's, let's, let's put the clock on it. How much time do we really think it takes? To, to You probably already know if it's a medium firm 
you probably already know who the recovery guy is, right? Sure. So why not at least have the conversation? You don't need anyone for that. Now, can bar associations get involved? And I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, this is just coming to me. Can we get involved, the bar association get involved, the low, big law, and say, have a movement, pick the point. Pick the point. Pick the point. Uh, pick the, which is as a, as a movement where you pick the point guy at the firm who is the recovery guy for people can go to if they're struggling. And okay, then so you, pick that you have guy. a conversation about whether Girl. this guy is the, can uh, be, have a broader view of recovery. Now, if that, if that person doesn't, having uh, that doesn't mean you don't do it. I mean, having somebody whose entire reference is a 12-step pathway is still a pathway. That doesn't mean you don't do it, but you would hope we raise some aware, awareness in that movement of pick the point that there are other ways to go. So I think what you're saying is don't overthink it if you have a point person give them enough information to understand that there are multiple ways that someone might get help and that there should be some thought given as to what might work for that person. Is it that well, simple? I think a pick, yeah, I think a pick-the-point person would be equipped with their own lived experience, one, which may be, which is probably 12-step, that, and that's fine, or they went to residential treatment and got ex exposure to other pathways in residential treatment, two, the knowledge of what's available to the uh, legal community at large within their jurisdiction, the lawyer's assistance program and understanding what they do. Three, understanding how lawyer's assistance programs work. You would be surprised how many people within the Texas legal community don't know how they work. Example, I got a message from a friend of mine good friend he said he had a friend who was struggling and he wanted to he wanted some options i said well call your lawyer's assistance program he didn't want to do that why do you think he was afraid that it would be not confidential exactly he was afraid his name would get out there as the person who reported this individual who was struggling he did not know that you can make completely anonymous reports. You don't even have to give your name. So we have that disconnect right there. And then I put out on Twitter, did you know that you can, you can report a struggling colleague without ever giving your name? And I had several responses saying, wow, I didn't know that. So at a minimum, the pick-the-point person within the law firm would be equipped with his or her own lived experience, and I apologize for just going the male route when I use pronouns the first time, his or her own lived experience, a knowledge, a, a good working knowledge of the lawyer's assistance program, a good working knowledge of your employee's assistance program if you have one. A medium-sized firm may have one. Below that, probably not. When I had lunch with that gentleman, he didn't even know if his firm had a lawyer's assistance program. So my guess is they probably don't. And that's 60 lawyers. Well, not many people read their benefits plans either, in all honesty. So well, yeah, and that's they, true, and it's hard to help somebody struggling if you don't know what's in there, right? No, absolutely, absolutely correct. Because absolutely that person correct. may not want to go to human resources. 
because they think that is going to get out. Well, and, 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 and frankly, in many instances, people's fears aren't totally unfounded. Um, no. Well, what did I say? My experience after 30 years, after 30 years in this profession, that it's very hard for anything actually to be kept confidential anywhere, any place within the well, confines where, of an organization. Where I, where I think that is, where I think that goes off the rails, rails a little bit, is that within lawyers' assistance programs, they are in fact confidential. I challenge anyone to show me a documented example versus a guy told a guy who told a guy. I documented. No, my point is that my, confidentiality my point is not what. Yeah, my point is not with the lawyers' assistance programs. It's within the confines of an actual firm itself or company itself. Absolutely, which is why we have it the point. It is much harder. Pick the point. Right. Sure. Right. Which, which is why we pick well, the point with the understanding that that guy is insulated. Now, I remember a major firm out of Philadelphia was telling me about they have their pick-the-point guy. And the only, uh, the only condition was that if you uh, – if you go to him and there's misconduct, then that's not going to stay confidential. So come to the point, guy, before there's misconduct, right? Right. Right. Come early. Come early before there's misconduct, before the consequences catch up to the problem. Because if there's misconduct, yeah, then, what... then it triggers ethical obligations and malpractice issues. A whole host of other things. That's right. Well, Brian, we we have covered a lot of ground in 45 minutes, and all of it kind of gritty and grimy. Um, I am really grateful to have gotten into this conversation with you and to have um, had the ability to just have a raw conversation without the benefit of a script or a filter, because I think that it's too easy doing the work that we do or try to do to get lulled into a rhythm, sort of what I would call the wellness lullaby, where we talk about these things in idealistic ways and and we don't really tie it back to the reality that a huge, huge cross-section of our profession faces in terms of resources available to them, level of knowledge, the, the, the fact that often they are being funneled through bias through a program or a type of program that may or may not be appropriate. So your willingness to come in and to sort of attack this from the trench and, and, and have a gritty conversation that I think was relevant is extraordinarily valuable, and it's greatly appreciated by me and our You can firm. just call this the Brian Cuban rant this episode. I am more than happy to, <laughs> and you can guarantee that that's going to be the lead-in when we put this episode up, that will be the lead-in, the Brian Cuban rant. And this the bottom line, Mark, so, is that so many lawyers I talk to don't understand what's out there for them, and they feel completely helpless. They're worried. They're scared, uh, and they are in a in an information vacuum. We have to find a way to deal with that. And I think that's the obligation that we as advocates and, 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 and leaders of firms have is to get information out there so people can have decision points and knowledge to make decisions. And I think what, what the way you've covered it really sheds a lot of light on, on some of the issues we have when there's a lack of information. 
So, Brian, thank you very much for being my guest today. I am greatly appreciative. This is Mark Yacono. My guest today was Brian Cuban. Uh, the name of our podcast is Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. It can be found anywhere you get your podcasts on the Legal Talent Talk Network. Thank you and goodbye. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com. <laughs>